Noteworthy stories by WDAV Classical Public Radio celebrate the rich diversity of classical music's past, present, and future that is often overlooked. The weekly series hosted by me, Loki Karuna, serves up bite-sized stories about the lives and music of artists of color, women, and others from historically underrepresented groups. Check out this week's Noteworthy Artist and catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. From Aaron Copeland's Shaker Hymn-inspired Appalachian Spring to blues, folk, and mariachi celebrate the musical influence that shaped America at California Symphony's Copeland, American Traditions, September 30th and October 1st at the Lesher Center in the Bay Area. The show will feature Wynton Marcellus's jazz and blues-inspired violin concerto and music by Juan Pablo Contreras. Be transported to every corner of America in Copeland, American Traditions. Tickets are on sale at California. Symphony.org. Hey y'all, I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in. A pleasure to be back with y'all for another week of dialogue built to expand the thinking and approach to so-called classical music. Shout out to the returning listeners and supporters. This show is only possible because of you. So thank you. If you're new to the party, Triloquy is a podcast where I share information and opinion from the field. I showcase a dialogue with a mover and shaker in the arts, and I give you a peek into the deepest depths of my delusion in the weekly Triloquy. For more on the show, to check out past opuses, and to contribute, head over to the website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. Arvin Manocha, president and CEO of Wolf Trap, joins me this week. More on that in a bit. In the Triloquy, I'm going to go Buddha on y'all. I spent the weekend at a Black Buddhist retreat, so I'm going to share my experience, and hopefully you can pull something from it. But for now, we're going to go a little south of where I am right now and visit Philadelphia. I'm actually going to be there uh, early next week, so I'm sure I'll have something to share about that then. But there's some things happening with the Philadelphia Orchestra that I want to very briefly touch on just to make sure y'all are keeping up with what's what's out there. So I'm reading here from theviolinchannel.com. And before I get going, this was published on September 12th. So if something happens on the 14th or 15th, please consider this outdated information. But for now, This is what we have. The headline reads, Philadelphia Orchestra Musicians Contract Negotiations Stall. So if you've never been a part of a professional orchestra, one of the major activities is renewing the musician's contract every few seasons. This requires negotiation between the musicians and their union, the American Federation of Musicians in most cases, um, and the orchestra's administration or management, as they're uh, referred to. So the big things that always uh, come up are health care, parental leave, And of course, pay. The Philadelphia musicians and management aren't seeing eye to eye on pay right now. And uh, this is what's brought it all to the news. I'll read just a little from this article. It says, following the expiration of their previous contract on September 10th, 2023, musicians of the Philadelphia Orchestra have voted to reject a proposed settlement citing issues and pay parity with other professional orchestras. The vote came as Philadelphia Orchestra's management Uh, ceased negotiations 48 hours before the contract's expiration, quote, forcing the musicians to vote on a substandard proposal, 
stated the union. After three days of bargaining, 85 of the orchestra's musicians have voted against the Philadelphia Orchestra's best and final offer, while two members abstained. As no members voted in favor, the musicians are seeking renegotiation through their union, reported the Philadelphia Inquirer. So among the complaints is the fact that the uh, parental leave policy under the new contract is worse than the previous contract, which is questionable, something very important to keep in mind. But I want to talk about pay for a second. It says here in the rejected proposal, the first year minimum starting pay would increase to $161,391 along with a $10,000 signing bonus. Players would see an increase uh, to $172,887 by the third year and would also be eligible for Musicians Appreciation Fund payments. Again, that's base pay. Okay, so what do y'all think about that? $160,000 a year as a minimum to play Brahms and Beethoven every week or so? I'm going to be very vulnerable here and just say that I'm obviously broke, right? I must have so little money to consider that a pretty decent deal. Uh, but the heart of the musician's complaints is rooted in, yes, you guessed it, what other musicians make. It says here, according to union figures, the Philadelphia Orchestra's base salary without other compensations this year is $144,000 a year. Conversely, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the nation's highest paid orchestra, will have a base salary of $195,000 a year uh, this upcoming season. Local Union uh, 77 leaders also stated that the Philadelphia Orchestra musician salaries have been decreasing in comparison to their counterparts and fellow professional orchestras over the last two decades. So I actually think I'm going to just stop there. At this point, the argument is completely subjective because as someone who's been on the musician side of this argument, making far less money than what's being discussed here for the record, I get it. You want to keep up with the Joneses or, you know, not feel disrespected because the other kids have two pudding cups in their lunchbox. But girl, there's people out here struggling. I say this with compassion. I'll descend on the Philadelphia Orchestra right now and just say generally, it's not a good look, in my opinion, to allege to want to engage broader audiences when stuff like this is out there in the open. I don't want any musician to starve or to be homeless or to lack any human want or need. But I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Sure. Keep fighting for the same amount of, you know, as the uh, L.A. Phil makes. Fight to make double their pay. Hell, triple while we're at it. But help me understand how to be supportive uh, in this front. How can I be a supportive arts lover right now? Because I'm not seeing how a regular salaried person like me can really contribute to this sort of discourse. And I'll also say this. I'm grateful for every single dime that I'm able to pull in every month. I still consider myself very much working class, but I'm humble enough to acknowledge the privilege of making some money to take care of what I need to take care of, especially as someone who lives in New York. There are many people who, you know, make less than I make. I'm, I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm going to just Google real quick. Okay. Uh, yes, it says in 2023, the average Philly salary uh, is about $70,000 a year. The U.S. average is just under 60. Okay, the Philadelphia Orchestra musicians rejected a contract that's nearly $100,000 more than that. Let me know what you think. <laughs> I don't think I have anything more to add. Um, so I'll just leave it there and we're going to jump right <laughs> into my dialogue with Mr. Arvin Manocha. So Wolf Trap 
in uh, Vienna, Virginia, that's near Washington, D.C. Uh, it's an outdoor performance venue and a part uh, of the National Parks Service all in one. So running a place like that has got to be hard work. I'm sure that uh, Arvin deserves every penny he gets <laughs> every other Friday. Uh, and he joins me this week to talk about the job, his trajectory uh, into venue management, uh, and how venues fit into the conversations of expanding the arts. I really appreciate uh, getting to meet him. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of performing at Wolf Trap last year with the Ilharmonic. Shout out to the Phoenix and the Phantom and DJ Philly. So uh, we're going to hear an Ilharmonic performance to get us into my conversation with Arvin. Hope y'all enjoy. have a role to play you know individuals organizations companies venues artists ensembles the press i mean i think there is a role for everyone i don't think it's the same role in all cases i think we approach things perhaps um you know in, in your question i think there's a comparison to say between an orchestral organization the orchestra and the venue mm -hmm. um the orchestral organization is the producer, right? It's the artist. They are producing content. They are populating an ensemble of musicians. They are making choices about repertoire. The venue often is the vessel, right? So the venue brings the artist or the ensemble to the stage, but is not necessarily producing the event right it's not the content creator it's the vehicle for the content creator to be connected to audiences the venue can sometimes be the producer as well so i mean not to be too esoteric about things but it can be a presenter or a producer we are mostly a presenter we do some producing but you know broadly can venues play a role in thinking about inclusion diversity society um, yes, because we we think about our audience. So we think about not only who's on the stage, but also who's coming through the door. I feel that we have a responsibility to both, to the people coming through the door and the people on the stage. Hmm. And when you speak about those responsibilities, you make me think about uh, the time I had the honor of performing at Wolf Trap. Uh, as far as I remember. Yeah, the Illharmonic Orchestra. And sure. you know, thinking about that made me think about a previous performance we did um, not too far away, actually, at the Kennedy Center, where uh -huh. um, people saw orchestra on a billboard 
bought tickets and came and saw uh, something that they weren't quite expecting uh, when it comes to hip hop instead of things like Mozart and Brahms. So I guess from that, uh-huh. uh, my, my question is, you know, as a presenter, are there checks and balances that you consider to make sure audiences are getting what they expect? Um, is there something to audience shock value that uh, should be left up to audiences to, uh, to investigate for themselves? What, what are your thoughts on that responsibility? Um, that's an interesting one. I don't know. I, I don't know that I think of it as much as a um, a responsibility in the same way that I think about, say, a responsibility to being an inclusive venue. That mm-hmm. that to me is a heavy responsibility. I think communicate. I think what you're describing to me sounds more like communication. Mm-hmm. You know, I do. I think people should be shocked when they come to the theater by what they're seeing. Not really. I feel like, you know, we try, I I mean, I think we've all as an industry done a lot better about this over the last 10 years. We try to overly communicate with people before they make the decision to come about all sorts of things, Mm -hmm. not just about what's on the stage, but, you know, you probably have noted, you know, even in my adult lifetime of being in the arts, where we can, we include things like how long the program might be. So right. you have a sense of how long your evening will be. We try to communicate m- more and more, you know, set times or rough set times for a big pop show, right? When does the opener go on? When does the middle act go on? When does the intermission fall? When does the headliner show? We try to communicate in advance about, you know, here's the kinds of food you might be able to avail yourself. Here's a sample menu. Hmm. I mean, restaurants do the same thing, right? Here's the menu. Because we all, as consumers of anything, of experience, we have become highly accustomed to curating our own experience. Gone are the days where, you know, you bought the album and you had to listen to the album from start to finish because that's how the turntable worked. Mm -hmm. Gone are the days where, you know, the predominant uh, method is to buy a subscription, a conforming subscription and buy eight or 10 symphonies or operas or plays, and you have to see all of them. We have come to a place where I can stream the exact song I want to listen to when I want to listen to it. I can listen to Tay-Tay or Beyonce's last album in any order I feel like it. I go to restaurants knowing full well what I'm going to choose from so that I don't get there and think, wait, I don't like any of these things. Now I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. so i think we do the same on stage we try to say to people here's the map here's where you'll park here's where you'll sit here's the view from the seat that you might buy before you buy it right we give people such detailed information all of which is intended to say you are not going to be totally surprised by any aspect of this when you get here Mm because we want you to spend your money and take that decision of like, I, you know, limited amounts of places I could spend money and too many choices. We have to make it somewhat easy for you to say, this is the thing I'm going to spend the money on. Mm-hmm. That being said, art is surprising and it can be shocking. But I don't think it should be surprising at the level of what is the artist I'm going to see today or what genre am I going to? I think it should be, okay, I'm going to this opera. I know it's opera. I know who the director is. I know who, what the, you know, the title might be. 
doesn't mean I'm not going to be surprised by elements of that production. It's not even to say that I might not be shocked by choices that that artistic team is making. But I'm not going to say, oh, this is an opera. I thought I was buying a ticket to an R&B show. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that feels like maybe the wrong kind of surprise. Right, right. And with that being said, I think there is some room to acknowledge that there are adventurous listeners out there that of course. You know, may go out for, for anything, even with those people in mind. Do you think that the uh, subscription model is a little outdated? Should we be focusing on show to show when we think about audience development? Look, I think the subscription model has a lot of wonderful, uh, positive traits to it. And, and in full disclosure, you know, here at Wolf Trap, we are not a subscription-based organization by and large. Very, very, very few exceptions to that. Um, but I've worked in the arts my whole career. I come from a background where it was very subscription-based um, in terms of how we sold tickets. And it does allow for a lot of very positive things. I mean, it allows for some creativity. It allows for some chances to be taken. It allows for new work and perhaps less familiar artists to be in a place where they might have a larger platform. It certainly has some uh, efficiencies and financial benefits to the organization as well to help keep costs down and put put that dollar back onto the stage. There's definitely advantages. That being said, I mean, I don't think anybody in my business who's in the subscription model wouldn't say the times have changed. I mean, the, 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 the population is not as interested in that kind of model as they were forgetting about five years ago, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years ago, that would have been the only way Mm -hmm. those days are over. I mean, we all have to move on and adjust and um, that's just the way it is. The train has left the station. (laughs) <laughs> well, I want to back up uh, a little bit uh, and uh, give you an opportunity to share a little bit about where you're from and how you got into this business in the first place. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, the brief version of that story is I grew up in a small town in Ohio. Um, I started my professional career after my educational career in Los Angeles, California. Um, within a few years of moving to L.A., I uh, started working for a variety of arts organizations um, most significantly and for the longest period at the LA Philharmonic Association. Uh, I was part of the project team to help bring the Disney Concert Hall into fruition. Mm, wow. So, and I know you have a history there as well. And um, I worked with this, I worked on that project for a few years, and then I ended up becoming the general manager of the Hollywood Bowl in Hollywood, California. Um, I did that for 10 years. Um, while becoming the COO of the LA Phil, and then I moved here to Wolf Trap in Vienna, Virginia, where I've been for the last 10 years. Wow. When people hear, you know, LA Philharmonic and then um, Hollywood Bowl, I'm sure there are many people who would, you know, really be hearing you talk about classical music or orchestral music. Was was that always a, a specific interest of yours? Do you have a background in orchestral or classical music? Uh, no, actually, uh, neither. My interest and background in music is pretty wide and varied and um, I did play in the school band. I was, you know, but not an orchestral musician. I played the alto saxophone. Um, so I, I could not say that I spent my young years or my early uh, adulthood uh, immersed in the classical music field. Uh, I got involved at the LA Philharmonic for a couple of reasons. One of which is I have always been very committed to the notion of the role art plays in society. And it was very clear to me when I first moved to L.A. that the dominant 
artistic force in Los Angeles uh, at the time was the LA Phil, and in particular was their music director, Asapekka Solomon. It, it occurred, it, it not occurred to me, it became clear to me that while I may not be an orchestral musician, and I'm, I'm never, um, I make no bones on that front, there was something very, very, very important afoot at the LA Phil. And this was pre the construction of the Disney Concert Hall. Um, you know, and a side note, I always have had an interest, but in a very layperson's way, but a significant interest in contemporary architecture. So I was tracking that project just as an interested party as an Angelino. Uh, I had the opportunity, um, I was asked if I would come on and join the LA Phil team in helping bring the building. Uh, it was a final phase of its planning at the beginning of construction, help bring it to uh, fruition. And to me, it was more an exercise in. Um, this is an opportunity for somebody, all of us, to play a part in helping bring the orchestra and Esapeka's artistic vision to its fullest potential by, by virtue of exposing it or bringing it to the largest possible audience. Mm. That I found very uh, intriguing. I was not the one on the artistic planning side. I was not the one dealing with that. And I, I'm uh, fully aware of that. But I knew at that age that, you know, there's a very broad team around the arts that helps make the arts work. There is a business around it. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of different people behind the scenes to make an organization and therefore its ensemble successful. Um, and I've seen over the years too many very, very worthy artistic enterprises, you know, whether that be a, a, a singular musician or an ensemble or a group or a quartet or a producing company that fail to recognize that you need a really strong business around you. Otherwise, the artists are not going to be given the maximum possibility for success. And sometimes there's a little bit of a disconnect in our business of, you know, we have to pay all of the attention and only all of our attention on the artistic creation. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it is kind of secondary or immaterial. I don't believe for a minute that the rest of it is more primary than the art. The art is the whole point. Mm -hmm. But you have to ride a pretty tight ship in order for that artist to have a chance to succeed. And I felt like my role in those early days in particular was I was part of the ship. I was I was part of what would help make the artistic folks, particularly the artists themselves, have the maximum chance to be a fully realized success. Yeah, it's really interesting when you talk about the business built around the arts, because specifically in uh, orchestral music, because of the nature of the field, myself included, you know, many of us have lived many places, land jobs within communities that we have no connections to. So that sort of community engagement aspect is even more of a challenge there for the artists specifically as a part of the ship, as, as yeah. you described, the business surrounding the art. What are yeah. some of the things you have to know or what are some of the things that you've had to do to understand how to actually engage the community and promote the art in the, in the most effective way? You know, community engagement for any art artist or art form, um, it's, I mean, I hate to sound very simplistic about things, but it's essentially about being in an authentic relationship. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's not dissimilar to the way 
we might think about our own personal lives, I think the longest, the longest and deepest engagement we have with other people are the people we have authentic, real relationships with. Hmm. We all know people who are fake. We all know people who are transactional. We all know people who are friends with you in a moment because they need something for you. And you know that when they don't need it from you anymore, they're not going to call. And then three years later, when they're like, oh, hey, you have that thing, they're going to call and be like, hey, do you want to go to lunch? I've missed hanging out. After a while, as you get older, right, we all know this. We all see this. We all can like read the signs. We all... Maybe when we were young, we get fooled by that and think, oh, yeah, they might have just, you know, been busy for three years. So they forgot about me. And now yeah, they want to reconnect. Now we're older. We see it from the beginning when somebody's approaching you, maybe without authenticity in mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why would I engage? Why would I be deeply engaged? Why would I perhaps take a chance on you with you if I don't feel authentic trust? I think that. That kind of basic, that kind of advice you might give to a a young adult about how to treat other people is the same advice we have to give ourselves. The relationship has to be authentic. The outreach has to be authentic. It has to be consistent. It can't be fair weathered and it can't be transactional or opportunistic. You know, with institutions, it's like a big machine it takes it's not like a friendship where you can call somebody and in a moment create a relationship and the nimbleness that two individuals might have with each other it's not quite as simple in that sense when you're dealing with a big institution and a whole community it's not one-to-one necessarily but it's the same kind of principle and i don't believe that anyone including ourselves is ever perfect in this regard but this is i think the guiding principle that if you want to have engagement, you have to not only engage, you have to engage in an authentic manner and in a consistent manner, and you have to have a longer term outlook. Mm -hmm. I think where people end up failing, and you know, a lot of this comes from lack of resource sometimes, right? I've seen this happen with institutions and, and, and peers around the sector over many, many, many years. And unfortunately, it sometimes can impact the smaller organizations more acutely because they say, hey, look, the marketing department might have a very, very good idea about community outreach, some some form of community engagement. We need to reach, pick an audience that we don't have. And, you know, they go out with a big initiative and doesn't work. Doesn't pay off, doesn't pan out, nobody shows up, there's no return, however you want to measure it. And then there's so much financial pressure that so, well, you can't do that again because it failed last year, right? So, We can't keep putting money into projects that aren't going to have a more short-term return because we have all these other competing needs. And those are real. Those are budgetary constraints. It becomes a very difficult trade-off as to where and how to spend energy. And sometimes people aren't able to continue on with really good ideas because the pressure sometimes can be, if it doesn't work the first time, then we're not going to give you the budget to do it the second, third, and fourth time. Hmm. We don't have in our sector the same culture of R&D that you would have in, say, a big corporation where you might think, you know what, we need to allocate budget for research and development so that we can try 50 things and only two of them might pay out, but it's worth it to spend money on the other 48 because those two are going to be really important to us going forward. 
And you just assume there's all sorts of money spent in research and development that's not going to have a short-term outcome. In our sector, because the budgets are so tight, the pressures are so heavy, the culture is always, if there's any extra money, and I use that word in, in inverted commas, it should go directly back onto the artist, onto the stage. There's no money for outreach departments, communications departments sometimes to actually make mistakes, mm -hmm. to try something and then try five different variations on it until you get to the right one. We sometimes say to people, hey, well, we gave you that money to try that initiative last year and you didn't, nothing came of it. So you can't have that money anymore. And when I, when I think about creating these um, genuine relationships, when we talk about funding and, and partnerships, um, you know, I think about Wolf Trap's proximity to Washington, D.C. You did mention, you know, Wolf Trap is in Vienna, Virginia. Is it squarely in Vienna or are there benefits to, you know, being an hour or so away from the nation's capital? Oh, sure. Um, I think there's benefits for everyone in the in the DMV or the, you know, the district, Maryland, Virginia. We're all in the orbit of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. We might, in our case, be very proudly centered and headquartered in Vienna, Virginia. We always have been, but we're all in the orbit of the DMV. And I think the benefits, look, for my organization in particular, we are the partners to the National Park Service at our nation's only national park for the arts. Mm -hmm that we are located here because we are near the nation's capital. That, that, I mean, we are the national park for the arts. We work very closely with the park service. The park service is a unit of the Department of Interior. There is any number of good reasons why the nation's art park would be close to the nation's capital. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there, there's, a, there's an intentionality there. That is not accidental. Um, Beyond that, though, I think that we have an outlook, not just by virtue of our connection to the Park Service, but through our very, very large network of educational activities and partners that is national in scope. Um, we have education programs across this country. We have Wolf Trap affiliates, which are year-round programs in education in 24 cities across the nation. We very much administer that program here as a national program. Um, there's lots of good reasons for us to be near the nation's capital on that front as well, whether that be through uh, interaction with you know, those who are in the, in the uh, seats of setting educational policies and setting educational objectives for our country, whether that be vir virtue of when we do pull in our national affiliate group to come to a national meeting, this is a logical place for that to happen. I can't help but to think about some of the similarities between Wolf Trap and uh, and the uh, the former institution that you work with, the Hollywood Bowl, namely the fact that they aren't, you know, indoor venues with big, heavy velvet curtains. You know, these are outdoor venues that offer a slightly different experience. Are there unique um, challenges or or even unique opportunities with those types of venues as opposed to, you know, what some people may consider a more traditional venue? Um, yes and no, in the sense that, um, you know, what, what I hear in that question a bit in that, in that comparison between traditional venue and say the venues that you reference, whether it be Wolf Trap or the Bowl, the most significant difference to me is really about size. Hmm. Um, 
you know, yes, there are some atmospheric to, to not to be punny, but there's some atmospheric difference about being outdoors versus in a controlled indoor environment. But the most significant difference between, say, a venue like ours and a quote unquote traditional venue is that we are very large and the bowl is even much, much larger. So we are in the 7,000 seat uh, bandwidth. The Hollywood Bowl is arena size. It's 18,000 seats. Oh, wow. The traditional arts theater with the heavy curtain is an indoor theater of 1,800 to 2,600 seats. Mm. That's the most significant difference because, you know, the size of any venue on some level has a profound impact on what that venue does. When it's a small black box or a small 200-seat theater, that is a different world of presentation of art than a 2,000-seat theater. Clearly, that's different than a 7,000-seat theater. And then, you know, to use the most kind of extreme example, we are not a 50,000-seat stadium. So there are things that are very, very different about what they can do and what would they what they would do versus what we would do when it comes to presenting music. Um, so for a venue like ours, the thing that, that that links the Hollywood Bowl and Wolfra beyond being outdoor venues that are nonprofit organizations that are affiliated with park systems, these three things are all true. The thing that's probably most important that links us is a commitment to presenting music on a very broad scale. Hmm. So, you know, typically in the five to 10,000 seat arena, group that we are part of, you don't see people doing orchestral music or traditional jazz or opera or presenting dance. You see a lot of big pop stars, right? Big pop acts who are trying to fill five to 10,000 seats a night. Um, likewise, you know, when you are in a traditional indoor theater, you might have 1800 seats. You're not presenting big rock shows like Lenny Kravitz or Sting or, you know, whoever it may be. The fact that we're big, but we still present orchestral, and in our case, you know, fully staged ballet, fully produced grand opera, that's a very unusual thing. Um, and sometimes that can be the most challenging part because our venues, using these two examples, are so much bigger than the venues that traditionally you would see those art forms in. Mm -hmm. That's the, it's an interesting challenge, but, you know, there's a handful of, venues of our type around the country that really do still have some form of commitment to every genre of music. Mostly you would see things a bit more focused, right? Your big commercial venues are going to be all rock and pop all the time. You might have an opera festival like Santa Fe where it's all opera. Mm -hmm. You might have, you know, a place which is really about classical music, a chamber music festival or a place like, you know, Vale where it's, you know, visiting orchestras all week, all summer long. You might have a blues festival. You might have the folk festival in Newport. You don't often have a week like we have at Wolf Trap where it could be Dolly Parton on Wednesday, A.R. Rahman on Thursday, American Ballet Theater on Friday and Saturday, and then Lionel Richie on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Like that's not typical, mostly. That's some week. <laughs> and that's like every week. I mean, that, that's a that's a made up week, but every week of the calendar looks like that on some level. I want to pull on that thread of uh, really uh, giving room for every genre of music. If Wolf Trap were lucky enough to book 
Beyonce. I hate to even think about what those logistics would <laughs> would look like for you. Right. But conversely, you know, let's say there's uh, an orchestra that wants to do one concert. Let's say it's more traditional repertoire, the Beethoven and and the Brahms. Do you just hope that you fill all seven thousand seats? Is there a sort of specific marketing that Wolf Trap offers to make sure that people know about those types of concerts? I wonder what those logistics look like on your end. Um, you know, I'll answer the latter part of that question. First, we are not unrealistic about what we are doing. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're all professionals. We have been in this business for some time. And I don't mean just at Wolf Trap. I mean, at any of these venues, like the people who work here are not um, accidental employees. They're there because they have a sense of the business that they're in. We do not approach, say, hey, let's book Sting and let's book, pick a very traditional, you know, program from the symphony. We don't assume the same things about both. Hmm. We know that, you know, we do things like traditional ballet and opera and more traditional straight ahead classical programs or sometimes traditional jazz. We do them because we are proud of those art forms, because we believe that they should be on the stage of the National Park for the Arts, that we do play a role in introducing young people and sometimes young families to art forms that they might not be as familiar with. And we know that that doesn't mean that they're all gonna sell out every time. That's our commitment that we make. If, if we believe they would all sell out every time, we would be a commercial presenter of music and we would either believe that or never do it. Hmm. The reason you don't see the ballet at a big Live Nation venue is because they would say they're not, we're not going to sell nearly enough tickets for what our business model demands. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. That's their business model. The reason we're a nonprofit presenter of music and art is because we will make room for all of the different art forms. We have members, we have philanthropists, we have corporate partners, we have the entirety of the machine of the nonprofit arts enterprise to help make sure that um, we can bring the American Ballet Theater for two days. That's not a that's not a business decision. That's a artistic decision. So, considering the artistic uh, lens through which those decisions are made. Is there a such thing as risky programming for Wolf Trap? Do you ever feel like you have to cross your fingers and make sure you get at least 100 people there at the at the venue? Um, yes, yes and no. I mean, there are definitely things that are more high risk than others. And there's definitely things that we expect less people than others. Um, I don't think we would be doing our jobs well if we were in a position where we had to wonder or worry whether 100 people would come. Hmm. Because when I say that we do things that are non-commercial, we also recognize we have a 7,000 seat venue. It would not be responsible, not just from the back of house side, I would not bring an artist onto the stage where I felt like, you know, it might be one or 200 people here. I don't think that's fair to the artist. Mm -hmm. That's a 7,000 seat house we're gonna be looking out onto. That is not a good experience for anyone involved. Right. <laughs> not good for those 100 people to be sitting in an empty theater. It's not good for the artist. There are other size venues all over town. <laughs> we don't have to be everything to everyone. Right. Um, we have to work within a certain parameter 
in our large venue to make sure that we are as broad as we can be, but we are also realistic about the circumstance. Well, in the past 10 years, you've uh, led Wolf Trap uh, towards some really incredible successes. I wonder what uh, you have your eyes on in the horizon as you think about the next five to 10 years at Wolf Trap. Um, well, I appreciate that comment. Thank you very much. Um, you know, these last couple of years, I mean, I should take pandemic out of the mix because those two years didn't count. The last 10 years at Wolf Trap, we have been on a very steady upward path in terms of broadening the audience or broadening the diversity of the uh, artists that we bring on stage and um, kind of pushing the standards of quality as high as we can and broadening our audience. And we've seen our audience grow every year. We're, we've been having a, a wonderful few years of growth. These last couple of years, we've also layered in, um, through philanthropic investment, improving and adding to the amenities on site to make the experience better for our artists, for our audiences, for people of different abilities, we have a tremendously important and very long range plan to increase accessibility, physical accessibility. Um, my feeling about the next five to 10 years is we have more amenity and physical plant investments we're making. We're about to launch a very big project coming up next year. I think people are really going to see over these next five years a new and changed experience. I think that is going to be like an additional shot in the arm. You know, I think people are recognizing that the um, the season looks different than it did 15 years ago. And I think mm -hmm. you know we're starting to enjoy that. And there's a lot of good word of mouth about that. I think we're just at the beginnings of people seeing the changes at Wolf Trap, whether it be improved amenities, more accessible amenities, more uh, aesthetically pleasing experiences. That is, I think, the next era of people recognizing that, hey, this is a new time for Wolfshot. They just had their 50th anniversary, and it feels like there's a lot of change over there. Wow. Wow. I want. I do want to ask a really quick COVID question since you brought it up. It seems like yeah. with a venue like Wolf Trap, there would have been unique opportunities to seat audience members, every other seat with the mask. I mean, it is an outdoor venue. Yeah. Were, were any of those types of things uh, beneficial? Was was being an outdoor venue beneficial in any way during that time? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, not to say it wasn't a terrible and difficult time. Of course it was. Mm -hmm. You know, in year one, the really, you know, early stages of COVID when there was nothing, you know, you weren't allowed to do anything. Right. We didn't want a year to go by where art wasn't made on that site because it is our nation's, you know, park for the arts. And we believe very strongly that our obligation is to all of America because Americans own their public lands and the national parks. They belong to all of us. They don't belong to any one of us. They belong to all of us. So that first year, because we were outside, we were able to do a lot of filming of artists in outdoor settings, right? So we had access in that sense to versions of stage space because we had so much outdoor space and we have outdoor theaters to work with. In the second year, in 21, as things started to slowly open up, our the first half of that season was actually, as you say, socially distanced pods. Mm -hmm. So we were selling, you know, pods of four that were six feet apart from the other pod of four. 
And that allowed us to open our 2021 season at the traditional time, end of May. We were, in that sense, selling tickets for concerts well before many of our local indoor theaters were able to because they couldn't get anyone inside. We went to full capacity programming in, I believe, August of 2021, so August and September. Uh, a lot of theaters were opening for the first time in August because they were indoor. We mm -hmm. were able to be open for two and a half months prior to that doing social distance potting. Wow. Wow. Well, congrats on that. that, that, that was, I'm sure that really kept things afloat in the best way that it could. Yeah, yeah. No, we were, we were very fortunate. And we actually also, in those years, worked with some of our local peers in the arts community who didn't have access to stage space because they were in indoor theaters or they were renting indoor space to come out to Wolf Trap and use some of our spaces, not even always for public performance or anything, but just to have the ability to have their artists have some opportunity with each other in a safe environment. So we, we tried to be as flexible as we could be. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of flexibility, I, I wanted to uh, wrap up uh, by asking you about uh, shifting into uh, the, the field that you have found yourself in. There are many uh, classically trained musicians, myself included, who transition away from the performance side into other things like, you know, the arts admin and orchestra management. Yeah, sure. But let's say there's a, a really incredible violinist who is interested in um, getting into operations, especially yeah. for large venues. Where would you uh, say they should start and what direction would you point them? There's so many different paths, actually, and I'm, I've met so many members of the um, of the kind of uh, the, the teams behind these organizations, including of my own, who come from a former musician, you know, background. Um, I've seen musicians go into operations for concerts because they're so close to that world that you know they really understand it and. You know, I've met folks who say, you know, I realized I wasn't going to continue on as a performer, but I really. I really loved all my years performing, seeing how it all came together on stage. And there's kind of a, a Jenga and you have to be artistically inclined, but also have kind of an operational mindset to want to do that. I've seen many performers over the years go into fundraising hmm. um, because it is an opportunity to support this art form that you clearly have a deep passion for. And fundraising is about connecting the art form with philanthropists and benefactors who can really make that art form come to life. So what do you imagine your narrative is? Your narrative is talking about this art form. So you, I can see how that's a natural transition. You know, people say, I love orchestral music. I want to help raise money for orchestral music. And that means I'm talking to donors about music. I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. I've seen uh, many performers go into um, the artistic management whether that be the um, arts administrator in the classical sense from an organization. It can mean also going to work for one of the management companies or one of the agencies that manage the careers of artists, because those people also um, have to have not only a love for the art form, but a real innate understanding of what the musician needs as an artist. Um, I've seen people go into marketing for similar reasons to development. Um, I would say if you were thinking about making a transition to really start to think about, well, what aspect of the business is most similar to my passions? And if you don't know, 
I know this sounds easier said than done, but, you know, reach out to your local arts organizations or people you might know and just ask questions. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about how the departments work. Like what, you know, PR is another place I've seen people go into because it's, again, it's storytelling about the arts and often artists are the best storytellers, right? They know the inside, they know what it means, they can speak authentically, they can do outreach that doesn't feel like BS because they've walked that walk. That's the Amped Quartet performing You Are the Best Thing by Ray LaMontagne. Ray's playing Wolf Trap this weekend. Uh, So I did a little learning and found out uh, about this uh, beautiful arrangement of one of his top songs. Shout out to Scott. I'm sure he knows uh, Ray LaMontagne. And uh, shout out to Amped uh, for that beautiful performance. And of course, shout out to Arvin for joining me this week. Hope y'all will check out Wolf Trap if you're in the area. And even if you're not in the area. I think it's a great uh, destination venue if you look at their calendar and see something you want to check out. All right, so I'm going to spend a few minutes telling y'all how this weekend at my People of African Descent Buddhist Conference went. So this is, uh, of course, uh, put on uh, at the Florida Nature and Culture Center, which is a venue of the Soka Gakkai International. If you want more information on SGI and nam myoho kyo of course, never hesitate to reach out. But the idea is that uh, this retreat, uh, and this one in particular for me, again, practicing Buddhism as people of African descent, is supposed to be sort of an escape from everyday life, just, you know, getting some time to relax, to chant with people and to just be happy. You know, somebody at the conference, uh, shout out to Demetrius, actually from uh, Memphis, from my hometown of Memphis. He uh, said it's just a transformative experience for him because there's just a lot of black people sitting around talking about being happy. Um, anyway, so that's what I was prepared for. But things were a little bumpy for me when I showed up. They didn't uh, have me on the list or couldn't find me on the list. And uh, when I was trying to play certain roles during our uh, our morning and evening gongyo sessions, you know, our, our twice daily uh, prayers to the Gohunzen, um, you know, there was some complications there on seating for me and and all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to like. Y'all know me. I wanted to take the mic and, you know, share my experiences and things. But, you know, there wasn't really room for that. So I was kind of having a rough time. I I even had to uh, call Dell back at one point. I was crying a little bit about the hard time I was having. But, you know, I decided to do my practice to go and just chant it out and just seek in myself what I needed to see. What is the problem that I'm facing and how can I, you know, create some value out of this rough time that I'm having? So, you know, I'm chanting and I'm chanting and I'm chanting. And what I eventually came to was that what's toiling me or what was toiling me in those moments was my ego. I was expecting, you know, for 
the red carpet to be laid out and oh of course you you know take the mic and you know just to be treated like some celebrity not that i think that i'm that way because these people don't know my work and i don't even uh promote triloquy i don't even say the word triloquy at um at, at this conference but you know there was still something deep down inside of me that was expecting a type of treatment that i wasn't getting so what i had to come to was that the problem isn't everything around me or anyone around me. The problem is myself. I'm the one who needs to, you know, step back a little bit or not have certain expectations on how I think I should be treated, excuse me, treated in the space where people don't really know me or or know my work, where a space where we're all equal, really. And and that that's something that should be celebrated, not something that should frustrate me. So as someone who, you know, enjoys being in the limelight. How I expanded my idea on that, you know, just really getting out of my ego and caring more about people's experience as opposed to whether or not people get to hear from me. It made me think a lot about the work that I do in general and the work of uh, just making the arts a better space. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm, you know, guilty person number one, the ringleader of always trying to, you know, be at the center of things, getting the affirmations and the, uh, and the, uh, you know, just the, the applause and the, uh, just being the person who is seen as making the impact. And as we move forward, I think that more of us need to think about what the actual impact is as opposed to getting that recognition and affirmation in the moment. I said this on my um, Instagram story uh, while I was still down there in in Florida. Um, but it's, it's just something that I've been thinking about and and hopefully something that you can think about as well. And I think it it shows up in in different ways. Um, maybe there's a, a a coworker that you're trying to have an impact on, or or you're an activist like I am, or there, there's just some part of your work where um, you're really looking to be recognized and uh, affirmed for for your efforts. Is that the point of the work that we do? Is that the point of the work that you do, or is the point the actual impact? That's the the deep seated thought that I took from this conference. Of course, the the food was great, and I had lots of great dialogue with Black Buddhists from across the country. So many people that I could shout out. Shout out to uh, Joy. Shout out to uh, Axel, who lives here in uh, New York. Uh, they live over in in Brooklyn. I mean, just so again, Demetrius and uh, all, all sorts of folks. Uh, you know, I, I can't shout out everybody, but anyway, my point is. For me, taking the time to really be challenged in a place that I felt like is perfect and really for what it is, is perfect for me to be in the perfect situation and still face challenge. I had to dig deep down inside and understand what it is that I need to shift about myself to see things in a different light and ultimately to feel better because it doesn't serve me to be frustrated or to feel any sort of way. It serves me and ultimately everyone else to be happy. So maybe you're frustrated with something right now or seeking recognition or or whatever you can take from, from, from what I'm sharing here. Um, I hope you can take it. You know, even in the Lotus Sutra itself, it uh, it talks about how difficult it is to explain the the mystic law. You know, uh, the the historical Buddha tells his uh, number two Shadiputra. You know what? I'm not even going to say anything else because it really just takes 
having been there, having the experience of uh, living many lives and X, Y, and Z. So I think I'm going to do something similar. It really takes the experience of living in some frustration that's uniquely rooted in some sort of personality trait that you have to understand. So if you go through that, just remember, you got to look inside yourself. I'll, I'll, I'll actually close this week with a, a story that uh, was told at this conference that I hadn't heard before that was really impactful. The, uh, the Buddha, the historical Buddha was talking to Shadiputra, his number two, saying, oh my goodness, I just need a break. I'm so tired. Where can I hide? Where can I go sit down to take a break for a second? Shadiputra said, well, why don't you go to another country? And the Buddha said, oh, they'll find me there just in a matter of minutes. He said, well, why not another planet or another universe? And um, the Buddha said, oh, it'll just take them a few hours and they'll find me anywhere in the universe. I really need to think about the place that only the wisest people will look for me. So the Buddha goes into meditation, a deep meditation. And when he wakes up from this meditation, he tells Shadiputra, he says, oh my goodness, I have figured out where I need to go, the place where only the wisest people will look for me. And Shadiputra was extremely excited. He was like, where, where, where are you going to hide? Where are only the wisest people going to look for you? And he said, for the rest of eternity, I'm going to hide in the hearts of every living being. Isn't that a beautiful story? Take something from that if you can, and I'll talk to you next week. Cheers. Cheers. 